How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jay. And you're listening to the Cinema Side Show Podcast, episode 84. Ooh. I, I know. We need to mix up. We need to get you, like, a bingo sheet for, like, your... <laughs> for the Cinema Side Show bingo sheet, <laughs> where it's, like, famous, uh, most used quotes. I was, well, that's the thing. I, inve- I invented this new quote thing that we do at the start of episodes. Yes. That The whole reason I wanted to do that was to avoid me... Saying "ooh" every time you said a number, and it hasn't worked. No. <laughs> okay, hit me up with it. So, what? What's the record right now? I'm at two and one, right? Yeah, two for one. Yes. So you got blowout correct, Star Wars last week correct, um, but I think it was Tron that that knocked you over. My mic is no dramas. My mic is struggling. See, I don't know which way to turn it to tighten it. It's a righty tighty mic. It is righty tighty. Thank you. But I'm like I'm like bending my whole body. All right, quote from a 1984 film. Uh, I I think you're gonna get this one. Okay. I'd be surprised if you didn't. But let, let's go for it. I gotta lean in because my eyes are terrible. <laughs> this all this all mic situation is this is a bad start to the show. <laughs> all right, are we ready, Zeke? Yes. All right. <clears throat> Everything was fine with our system until the power grid was shut off by Dickless here. They caused an explosion. Is this true? Yes, it's true. This man has no dick. I do believe this is Ghostbusters. Ding, ding, ding. There we go. Very nice. 1984, Ivan Rittman film Ghostbusters, which we did recently. We did. Um, woof. Like five or six episodes ago? Oh, maybe 10. Maybe 10? 70. Enough. Ooh, now I kind of want to know. Yeah, doesn't matter. Not long ago. You can scroll. You scroll down and you shall down. see <laughs> the famous logo and our discussion on Ghostbusters. That's the one. No worries. But Jake, what did you catch in the last week in film? Uh, I caught a few things. I'll start off... Man, I just keep knocking my mic over. I'll start off with the most recent film. So this is one that came out in the last week that I caught in at Luna. Yep. Uh, called The Swallows of Kabul. Okay. So I talked about this last week since it was coming out. Yes. Now that I've seen it. Um, this might... I'm going to put it out there. This might be my new favorite film of 2020. Okay. And that includes wow. Baby Teeth. That's pretty. That's pretty crazy. That's high praise. It's so, high what did you like praise. about it so much? So, I think the thing that really, that I really loved, and I should preface by saying that I actually arrived late. Like, I missed the opening scene, and that seems to be a common thread because I missed the opening scene to Parasite, mm-hmm. and then I missed the opening scene to Portrait of a Lady on Fire. So, there seems to be like a, a theme of films that I love that I keep missing the first scene <laughs> on my first viewing. But I loved the world building, and it's a bit weird to say because it is like an animated film about, you know, uh, Taliban ruled Kabul in 1998. Mm-hmm. But there was something about the actual art style, not necessarily the animation. The animation is very simplistic, but the art style, sort of the watercolored look of it, yeah. it just kind of blew me away. It was one of those very rare moments where I walked out of the theater and I sort of forgot what the real world looked like for a little while. I kind of I had to like readjust my eyes. I was like, pretty, oh, cars, streets. It's pretty unreal. I know it was insane. Like it really, I yeah, it just really sucked me into the world, which was very uh, doesn't happen often, you know. Yeah. Um. So I really loved it for that, and I, I thought narratively it was just such a tight, very emotionally draining film, which you kind of mm-hmm. wanted to be. It's a very serious subject topic. matter. Yeah, yeah, about these two families, and I I think I read the logline a little wrong last week because it's actually about two couples. And sort of how they sort of uh, go through this like very tough world where uh, art is 
sort of frowned upon and, and the, you know, the Taliban don't, there's not a lot of freedom. You mm-hmm. know, it's not very much like what we experience on a day-to-day sort of schedule in our first, you know, first world problems, so to speak. Yeah. Um, but I just thought it all really worked. This is actually based on a novel from 2002 from Yasmina Karadra, which I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Oh, correctly, I'm, I apologize if I'm not. And it reminded me a bit of the novel A Thousand Splendid Sons, which was a, a book I read in high school. I don't know if you would have read it or not. but I have not. No, it, it gave me very similar vibes to that if anyone out there has read that book. I don't know if they've made it. I think they did make an adaption for it. Like a film adaption. I could be wrong. Potentially. Yeah, I might look into that. But um, no, I just really love the story and, and the boldness of it. And again, it's very emotionally resonant. And I think I told you off the show that it was just me and this other person in front of me watching the film and they were bowling their eyes out during the credits. So I was just, I just kind of backed out. I was like, <laughs> not to say that I wasn't emotionally moved as well, but you know, was, yeah, but um, yeah, fantastic, I'm, beautiful looking film. No, I think that's a, sounds, sounds like a very intriguing film. It's always mm. nice to have something that's, you know, animate, like a, such a profound story told in animation. So mm. that is pretty cool. Exactly. Um, I mean, if even the fact it was animated was almost, it felt almost like a like a backstab to the Taliban because that sort of is almost the act of animation is defiance against their beliefs as well. So it's I've seen some people be like, "Oh, why was this animated?" And I'm like, "Well, like I feel like that's why it was almost that extra kick." So I, mm-hmm. I think you're right. It's, it, it, it's great to find a film like that that really works. I really loved it. Now, Zeke. Yes. You, sir, have been on a four-week streak of not having seen any films. Apart from the film of the week. Apart from uh, the film of the week. Have you continued that streak or have you broken it? No, I've actually broken it. Ah! I watched two <laughs> new films. Um, so, for everyone who's keeping count at home, I'm up to <laughs> 211 films for this Ooh, year. I uh, think I'm at 200 or one. I think I'm at 198. So, I'm catching ooh. up, Zeke. You've caught up. <laughs> For the record, I have fallen well behind. The current day number is 236. So I need to make up 25 films. Oh, really? 236? Yeah. In order to hmm. successfully complete my challenge. However... Okay, cool. Um, I think I can do it. I think I, I, think I, I, think I can. Um, I'm going to start with uh, the older of the two films that I watched. Because okay. um, one of them's you know, a film that literally... Got released on Netflix, I think, last week. You talked oh, talk about it the week before. Hand in hand. Um, so I watched a the Will Ferrell, John C. Riley, uh, Talladega Nights: The Ballad of Ricky Bobby, Very which nice. is a uh, film directed by Adam McKay, who <laughs> obviously uh, has gone on to make you know obviously Vice and The Big Short, made more serious sort of genre breaking films, and um, you know he has his fair collection of uh, uh, fun comedies too, but. Mm. Um, yeah, I found this film quite enjoyable. I, I like the chemistry John C. Riley. I haven't seen Step Brothers either, so... What? No. I thought you had. No. No, I'm aiming to see wow. it. Wow. But I haven't watched it yet. That's a fun time. I haven't seen... I haven't seen this film we're talking about now, but Step Brothers is great. Yeah. And they have really good chemistry and they're really fun. Um, yeah, I really enjoyed it. I haven't got too much to say about it. It's comedy. Um, mm. uh, but bridging into my other film What's that I watched... What's the deal with Fairline Food? Yeah. Uh, bridging to my other other film I, I caught, I managed to watch Project Power. Very nice. Which, the brand new film. Brand new film. Jamie Foxx, Joseph Gordon-Levitt. I enjoyed the concept. Um, the concept involves a pill that gives you uh, 
superpowers for five minutes, but they're based. Mm. The superpowers it's only are for five minutes. Only for five minutes. Mm. Um, would that be worth it? Would you do that? Well, th- there's a potential of you dying every time you take <laughs> one. So no. Um, there are problems with this movie. Um, right. I like sort of the, the creativity behind. Uh, all the superpowers aren't just uh, comic book esque. They're all based off uh, actual animals' abilities. Right. Okay. Um, yeah. So like invisibility is based off an octopus. There's uh, there's a, there's a good scene that they explain how each of the uh, superpowers are actually based off. Uh, a genome affected by from an animal um and each person only gets that one that one superpower like it doesn't matter how many pills they take they only get to access the same superpower oh, so once once they have the first one they establish what their power is that's it yeah oh i see so it doesn't change gotcha um which keeps a bit of groundedness to it but at the same time um yeah i i can't say i i, I didn't mind Joseph Gordon-Levitt or Jamie Foxx in this. I think I've seen them mm-hmm. in both way better films. Right. Um, not not their uh, powerhouse performances. Not even close. Okay. No. Um, and you know that that's a shame, but also you know, it's it's an interesting concept, and mm. I don't see it getting a second film. But yeah, for the most part, I haven't seen Bright. But a lot of people equate it to the same sort of budgets. Harry Scale was Bright. I see. Okay, that's um, a big budget, though, isn't it? Yeah, they both have really pretty solid budgets. Um, I don't know if Project Power is Netflix original, though. I'm guessing it is, just because like, it's come to Netflix, it's newly released. I'm guessing it is an exclusive. But it's because obviously Bright was not favorably loved. No. like There's not a lot of people who really like Bright, I don't think. And I haven't seen that or obviously this film. I wanted to catch it to to talk with you about it. I didn't mm. have time, but I, I'm still interested in watching it just because you're right. The idea is interesting enough. Yeah, well, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, in 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 summary, I um, yeah, I felt seldom okay with it. It was consumable. Consumable. I yeah. like that. But good popcorn. Have it on the background. Yeah, there's some good action sequences. Oh, cool. So some innovative action sequences too. So oh, innovative, you say? Well, yeah, imaginative would probably be a better word. Right. They, they require thought in their choreography and that's what makes them quite engaging and entertain, oh. entertaining. Interesting. I feel like we'll be talking more about innovative uh, action scenes later on in the show. Bit of a tease there. Oh, cheeky, cheeky. So I've seen a couple of other films this week. Uh, both of these films were in the aim of finishing off filmographies. Mm-hmm. So, of course, the film of the week we're doing this week is Christopher Nolan. So I wanted to watch the only other film of his I hadn't seen up until this point, which was following his 1998 mm-hmm. debut. Uh, we did Memento in, in episode five, way, way, way back um, to learn that that was not his debut. He actually did one sneaky little film just before that. Uh, so I caught it. Uh, this was really interesting. I actually liked this film quite a bit and it's on YouTube. It's very easily accessible. It's 69 minutes long uh, had a budget of at the time six thousand USD, mm-hmm. so um, it reminded me a lot. Reading the production, it reminded me a lot of Disconnected in a way of just like you know, very cheap budget. They shot it on the weekend with other people who had their own full time jobs. Maybe not they weren't necessarily actors, all of them. Or uh, so it was cool to watch from that perspective and still be like, this is really good. Yeah, like it, you could sort of see his the seeds of success. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. His, you could definitely see his voice for it, where it's like this is a guy who's on a budget. 
He can't do the crazy stuff we're going to see later in his career. But there's still some really interesting concepts and ideas. And ultimately starts off with this guy who is obsessed with following people. He's like a writer who's, I guess, got writer's block or he's struggling. So he starts following people and he ends up following the wrong guy. And keep on, this happens like the first Mm -hmm. four minutes when the guy turns around and he's like, why are you following me? And then they establish a relationship together that turns into sort of this wider crime infestation that he gets himself unraveled with. But it does play with time. You know, it's non-linear, which mm-hmm. I didn't realize watching it. I wish I did. Because <laughs> I was like, what's going on here? Um, but uh, yeah, again, it had the seeds of what, you know, he's used to do with time. And again, he plays, I mean, we're going to talk about it more later in the show. Yeah. But he plays with time in almost all of his films, from Memento to, you know, The Prestige, even Batman Begins is non-chronological. Uh, Dunkirk, I, is that correct? Dunkirk plays with time from jumping to different yeah. perspectives. Yeah, so um, that is his thing. And what I found... Doesn't like linear storytelling. <laughs> apparently not. But, um, yeah, so the, the one thing that I found interesting is on YouTube, you can actually find... Uh, Criterion Collections YouTube channel. They interviewed Nolan about this film. So there's like a 30-minute interview of him just talking about making this film. And he talks about uh, learning the advantages of cross-cutting in this film, which I thought was a very interesting note he made because cross-cutting, which for those who don't know, is is the idea of cutting between two different scenes and uh, sort of insinuating that they're happening at the same time. Same time, yeah. Um, And the best example is probably Nolan's own film Inception, with the you know we're watching one dreamscape where the van is like flipping over and then it cuts to Joseph Gordon Levitt and we see the room rotating and he's in a fight scene jumping from wall to wall and it's like that's cross cutting we are connecting those two scenes through the edit and we're associating the actions that are happening in those different places and associating them together because of the the connection you're making through the edit so. I mean, that, that's probably a more complicated way of explaining cross-cutting, but it was cool to see him talk about how this film was the one where he really learnt the advantage of it in terms mm-hmm. of creating suspense and juxtaposing certain things, even just with inserts. And again, it's something that he uses a lot in his films. Um, so, I, yeah, watched the following. Really enjoyed the, it. Yeah, uh, the sequel to the director's corner we did back at episode five. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, yeah. Well, we talked about cross-cutting in, in our Memento episode. Yep. Well, I don't know if we called you can it. You check uh, episode five. <laughs> there you go. Just plug in episodes. Just, yeah, and it was just, that, this show is becoming a big self-referential library. <laughs> it's a it's a universe. It's an expanded universe. Yeah, the cinema sideshow universe. Or the cinema... What is it? The cin- cinema cinematic universe? <laughs> <laughs> The Sideshow Cinematic Universe. The Sideshow Cinematic Perfect. There you go. I like it. So yeah. the... Uh, the CSCU. You beat. <laughs> okay. That, that's... Uh, my brain is melted. Thank you, Zeke. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the other one was uh, Tarantino, whose only film I hadn't seen up until this point was Death Proof. So I caught that as well. I was like, let's tick off both those directors' sort of filmography boxes. And I got to say, I really like this film a lot. Death, see, Death Proof, yeah. Which is funny because it took me a while to really... For me, um, the only ones I haven't seen now are The Kill Bills and Death Proof. Yeah. I managed to tick off Jackie Brown earlier this year. Great film. Uh, saw Reservoir Dogs, seen Pulp Fiction, Glorious Bastards. Uh, and, you know, Once Upon a Time was an episode on this show, episode yep. 32. Well, we did Pulp Fiction uh, too. And Pulp Fiction. Um, so, uh, yeah, the only... Th- they're the three I haven't got to. He's done nine, yeah? 
Nine. Um, yeah, nine. But that in- that includes Kill Bill's one film. Okay. When you say nine films, that counts Kill Bill's one. So I guess you could say he's done ten. Ten. Yeah. Right. And yeah, it took me a while. Even when you said Death Proof, I was like, what? what what's that film? Who did that? And... <laughs> right. Yeah. It's definitely the one that I think he even he doesn't like as much as. Well, it's 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 definitely his least popular one, mm-hmm. and I'll get into sort of the production reason for that because it was sort of de- by design to be sort of a, a more sideline filmed. He has gone on to say that this is probably his weakest film, but then of course he follows it up with, "If this is my weakest film, that means I'm still a pretty good director." <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, you know what? Fair enough. No, I do. I really like this film. So for those who don't know what Death Proof is, it's his. Uh, Gosh, would that be his fifth film if you include Kill Bill's one yeah. film? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the idea was that he wanted to do this as a homage to you know, old slasher classics or exploitation films that you would usually see played in grindhouse theatres. And what this was meant to be was an accompany piece with Robert... Rod- uh, Re- Robert... Rod- Jeez. I always get a... Robert Rodriguez? Yeah, I guess so. I always get dyslexia when I... <laughs> <laughs> need to read certain names that's a short documentary um, you did aha yeah, you got little, little the referential plug. episode I know it's just, well, let's reference everything we can <laughs> yeah. um, but his film Planet Terror was also done with the same intention the fact was these films were meant to play together like double features in Grindhouse Theatres and that was the whole sort of idea of making this film and uh, like I said I really enjoyed it I love the it feels like a hangout film much like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood became much like Jackie Brown kind of is yeah less so i'd say i'd say less so yeah, yeah. there's and there's a constant move uh, moving in Jackie there's still Brown. like a plot i'd say at a pace yeah pulp fiction has probably some degrees of hangout in it yeah because at the end of the day it all goes back to yeah the dialogue being mm. sort of really strung out and, and how fast is the plot moving mm-hmm. so i can definitely give you that especially with pulp fiction like so many of the scenes are quite long and not necessarily drawn out but you know they're long scenes and this film has a lot of those too but it is ultimately in service of doing the classic psycho thing where we introduce to kurt russell who ends up being this sort of crazy serial killer and mm-hmm. the idea is that his car who he's a stunt driver and he actually went on to be the inspiration for brad pitt's character in last year's film mm-hmm. he has death proofed his car so he's able to use it and kill women and that's sort of the main premise that's set up in the first half. Yeah. And then they sort of flip that on its head by the second half of the film. And I won't spoil what happens, but it is a lot of fun, dude. It's so fun. Yeah. I'll have to give it a a look in. Absolutely. Look in. Look into the... Uh... I really got to get... It's, I'm with you, uh, obviously, with Nolan. It's interesting you've brought up mm. both these films because Nolan, that is the one film I haven't seen from him. Okay. Um, the following. And... Uh, for Tarantino, yeah, with the exception of the Kill Bills, uh, that's, that's the him. one that has eluded me. So, I probably could knuckle down and tick both those two off my own list. Yes, I recommend it. They're both good in their own ways. I think, I, like I said, I enjoyed Death Proof way more than I thought I would. It's always uh, nice. I, I had that with Jackie Brown. Yeah, yeah. I enjoyed Jackie Brown way more than I thought I was going to. So, because they're on the low end of of the of his list, so you don't think about the, this film so much. They're the ones that people don't talk about. That, yeah. and like like you said. Just because uh, people don't maybe like them as much does not make them bad films. Mm. No, it's, it's going to be an apt conversation in the second half of the show. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be interesting. Well, the last thing I saw to follow up on that was a QT8, the first date, 
which is a documentary about mm. Tarantino and uh, pretty much his career leading up to the production of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Um, and I thought it was a fine docker. It was interesting to watch. They tap into sort of his appreciation of films, his up-and-coming days influences, the work he does with people of color and, and, and women in general, mm-hmm. and like sort of what he what he did with you know with the roles of Jackie Brown and, and Kill Bill and even his influence to Samuel Jackson stuff. So like all that stuff was pretty cool. What was weird is that because of Harvey Weinstein's involvement, the documentary sort of had to every 30, 40 minutes have like a little weird dip where it's like, all right, now we're going to talk about this evil man here. And it's like, I get why, but it, it sort of feels like a weird disservice to the yeah. doco, which is like, this is meant to be a fun celebratory look into this wonderful director who's not even interviewed himself, which I thought was weird. That is pretty odd. It's almost like they're talking about him like after his death or something. It's like, just, just interview him <laughs> and let him speak. I don't know, but... Um, yeah, he didn't sound like as much a fan of that doco. Yeah, it was it was fine. I think I gave it like three stars because it's like, ah, uh, it's still fun to watch, but... Throw him a three. Yeah, exactly. I would have gave you a four if you had more archival footage. Yeah, that's fair. Like, don't just play clips from the movie. Show me filming the movie, you know? Mm. The production me... I don't know. It's fine. It's Go ahead. <laughs> Go ahead. No worries. Well, uh, yeah. if that's all you've watched, all uh, I've also see. quick update. I'm almost towards the end of second season of Westworld too. Ooh, so cool. we'll be gearing into uh, season. season three hopefully soon. Very nice. And that's the one you haven't seen yet. Yes. Perfect. So I'm, ex- I'm quick, excited. Quick Westworld update. <laughs> Show is great. It's still really great. And the Batman trailer came out. Oh yeah, it did too. And Jeffrey Wright's in it. And Jeffrey Wright's great. <laughs> I'm so glad he's finally getting a movie where he's going to get a bit more uh, time. Right, the, yeah. Uh, you know. Because I know there's a lot of hype around Patterson and obviously we're going to be talking about Patterson a bit later in mm, the episode. That we are. Um, but, you know, I, I feel like the Patterson's had enough hits now just isolated from Batman that he's not the part of the film I'm... Uh, the part of that film yeah that like you're, you're kind you're, you know what you're gonna get I'm with you I really wanna see Paul Dano Paul Dano that's the one that's 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 him real. is a riddle that's genius especially after there. now you've seen There Will Be Blood so yeah, you like know what he's capable yeah. of every time I see Paul Dano I'm like he's so good he's so good I think he's gonna make a great Riddler the only one he's in that I haven't seen that I'm like I know he's in this film is 12 Years a Slave I know he's in 12 Years a Slave man I gotta go back and watch that film I watched the film when it came out okay I remember Fassbender in it. I can't remember Paul Dano though. I think I saw like one clip. I couldn't tell you because I haven't seen the film, but okay. I know he's in it for a fact. So I gotta get on that soon. But yeah, Paul Dano was the riddle. I'm so keen on that. No worries. Well, uh, do you have anything you'd like to add before going into the second half of the show? Uh, not really. Just in terms of career updates, Disconnected is now out on Vimeo. Nice. It, it technically wasn't last week, but now you can rent it for two forty nine. Or purchase it for four ninety nine. Spicy. Spicy Vita Bala. No dramas. Well, it's time to move into our film of the week. But, Jake, what are we watching? This week of the show, we're watching Tenet. All I have for you is a word. Tenet. It'll open the right doors. Some of the wrong ones, too. Use it carefully. To do what I do, I need some idea of the threat we face. As I understand it, we're trying to prevent World War III. I'm not saying I'm getting here. 
Armed with only one word, tenant, and fighting for the survival of an entire world, the protagonist journeys through a twilight world of international espionage on a mission that will unfold in something beyond real time. Beyond real time. This film was directed by Christopher Nolan, as discussed in the first half of the show. Chrissy Nolan. Jake, we saw a pre-screening last night. Yes, we did. We saw the film about 22 hours ago. So, actual digestible time. Yeah, I would say, I'm not getting into it just yet, but I would say I was surprised that I only needed the one viewing. I'm going to say it up front, Joker, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And this is totally 2020's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, in terms of like film goers being excited about, about an auteur sort of thing. Um, I needed to watch those films twice before I did the podcast, but I'm surprised I only got the one. That's all I needed, I felt. Hmm. You saw it at Luna? Sort of in some of the new cinemas at Luna. Yeah, yeah. I was. I haven't been in that one before. There was like eighty seats. Eighty seats. But it was nice and private. We were pretty close to the screen, so that was cool. Yeah. Um. Okay. Um. <laughs> so hmm. this film is two and a half hours long, and I think this is one of one of, if not his longest film. Um. Anyone? I don't think maybe it Dark would Knight be because Dark Knight Rises is longer Interstellar is longer man this one you feel it though mm. you definitely feel it mm. I'm I mean I feel like we should just come out straight away off the top of our uh, <laughs> let everyone let, let let our listeners know our immediate reaction was mm. a mixture of huh and <laughs> what followed by <laughs> I don't get it <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, I will say maybe about an hour into the film. Um, and again, it was a pretty small theater, but I, like, I turned to you, Zeke, and I said, I'm like, what the fuck is going on? And you turned around and you said, I don't know. <laughs> I, 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 I said, thank God I'm not the only one thinking this because yeah. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> um, All right, so I, I will say up front. Okay. This film... It needed to be the savior of cinema. For those who don't know what's going on, if you're listening to this podcast, eons in the future, who knows? Obviously, we're in the middle of a giant pandemic. It means that we're very lucky to be in Western Australia where this film can hit theaters and it's very safe for us to go to the theater and watch this film. But there's going to be a lot of people in other regions, especially the US, and mm. especially, especially Christopher Nolan himself, who this film is very important for the industry. It costs well over $200 million to make, not including advertisements. Uh, for each delay, of which there was three delays for this film, oh. it is estimated to have lost about two hundred to four hundred thousand dollars per delay in marketing fees. So a lot of money that went into this film. Wow! <laughs> <laughs> Had to do it. Um. Yeah. Look, man. This probably was the most important film in in Nolan's career in relation to his stance in cinema and saving cinemas, getting away from a digital future. And I hate to say it, I think this is his weakest film. Just flat out. Yeah, up and with the exception, obviously, going into this review, as I said before, the only one I haven't seen is his first one. Yep. But that's probably the only one that most people haven't seen from him. I would imagine, that's, yeah. Um, probably Insomnia would might be the, the second mm. less likely, but I agree. I agree. I've seen, uh, especially in terms of his big blockbuster films. So, yeah. I mean, if you would count 
I'd probably count anything past probably which one came first, Dark Knight or Prestige? Which one came uh, first? Well, Batman Begins came out okay, then so, Prestige. Yeah. Yeah. So probably ba- from Batman Begins mm. onwards, every film he's done has been blockbuster. Yeah. Like, they haven't been, you know, expensive indie films. They've all been full-blown blockbuster films. And this is, this feels like to me, misfire might be the wrong word, but it's pretty close. Um, this is definitely okay. his weakest of, of all of them. Mm. And I, I, I was funny because going in, we had a couple of our our colleagues. They had already seen the film and were left with lukewarm reviews. Mm. Um, and but their reviews were pretty spot on. So right. um, this film is, it's, it almost feels entitled. Uh, it, it, it's got the the case of its its eyes that were bigger than its belly i think <laughs> um in the sense that i think it wanted to do so much that it ended up completely losing it's going to lose a lot of people i think um you mean just like people in the general audience. viewer yeah because when inception came out there was a degree of people that thought that that was too convoluted right and I mean, I straight up, I watched Inception years after it came out and it didn't confuse me at all. Mm. It was very, quite linear because all the rules behind the psychological concept that Nolan was discussing in that film were outlined within the first act. Um, I mean, in Inception, they have that uh, Chinese New Year party at the start and then... I remember that. After that scene, we get that's the first introduction to the whole idea of Inception. But mm. then Ellen Page is used as a as a catalyst character to explain the rules. Yeah, she's the she's, she's the, the viewer. She's yeah. the audience. Yeah. Um. Whereas in this film, the uh, protagonist, the the protagonist <laughs> who is uh, names the protagonist. He self labels himself just to just to be sure. Um, yeah. Who John David Washington? Um, right. Yeah, John David Washington. So I wanted to double check that. Um, he essentially doesn't explain anything. None of the rules of of tenant are uh, brought up to us by him. Yeah. And the secrecy between him and Patterson yields even more confusion and secrecy because no one wants to tell each other everything for security purposes, but that yeah. also means the audience has no clue what the <laughs> fuck's going on. Um, yeah, I think... I mean that's the main thing. If you don't want to know any like any spoilers at all, we'll, we'll give you a, a we'll give you a heads up when we're about to go into real spoilers. Mm-hmm. If you don't want to know anything, <clears throat> excuse me, you might want to jump out of the podcast now. Yeah, because we're going to go into plot stuff and we're going to explain what we're talking about when we were confused for whatever reason. But um, no, I'm with you, dude. I think that's one of the biggest problems is the protagonist. And you're right; it's it's almost. I mean, we looked at each other and laughed every time he referred. I'm the protagonist mm-hmm. of this operation. And he's, he, I looked the, I checked the credits. Yeah. Because his credit prior to the film coming out was the protagonist. And I thought that was like a cheeky, oh, well, they, you know, they, it's gonna, they're going to reveal. Maybe he's Cobb. Maybe this is an Inception sequel, and it isn't. It absolutely is yeah. not an Inception sequel. Um, but no, in the credits, that's he's the protagonist. And they, they actively avoid giving him a name. Even when Kat's like, oh, and you're Mr. And he gives a name, but it's like, no, I'm looking for that person. They're sort of tricking the audience. I'm confused. With that. <laughs> I, I don't understand the point. 
Uh, yeah, I, it, it felt too meta for no reason whatsoever. So, but no, I think you're right. And, and again, the fact that Ellen Page is, is the conduit for the audience mm. in the other film, it's like, well, at least the majority of the protagonists know what's going on and then we're getting these scenes of exposition, which, you know, people didn't like Inception for that reason. This film... <laughs> Doing this <laughs> in terms of scenes of exposition, yeah, no, it's like this well, is ridiculous. It's ridiculous. It's it's crazy. It's like uh, I, f- I felt like I had to. I was going to be writing a lab report by the end of this. <laughs> it's like there's so much to learn and absorb. Yeah, in such a such a period of time, and it ends up becoming confusing and hazy and um at some points feels nonsensical yeah um there are things that exist for no no i mean are we moving into spoilers now is this i think in terms of general plot details like other than like the ending like certain reveals i think we can talk about general like what the actual plot is of the film okay well we can talk about that essentially it's there's these items that Mm. uh john david washington and patterson are looking to acquire that will bring about uh world war three or doomsday doomsday yeah if they don't and then the whole concept of there's this we uh this Essentially, the it's like a reverse world where mm. everything moves. It's just pretty much just in opposites, basically. Um, I mean, there's obviously more physics, uh, physics rationale and mm. sort of alternate reality rationale conveyed in it, but a lot of this stuff is left so ambiguous or it, go, it ranges from being completely ambiguous and vague to being overloaded with concepts that most people would never have heard of before and i think the difference between that and something like even interstellar where all of the scientific rationale used in interstellar is dumbed down in the film Mm. in order to make it interpretable i mean the whole concept behind the seven-year planet the first planet they visit that's all explained before they land on the planet exactly and it's, yeah. it's it's also dumbed down to a, a point where it's very easy for mainstream audience whereas this film it doesn't want to give you a crib sheet to understand it it <laughs> <The manual>. wants, <laughs> it just wants you to just enjoy all of the people going backwards that should be going forwards <laughs> there is a quote very early in the film and this is my letterbox review is the quote is just don't try to understand it from Clemise uh, Palsy. That's the name of the actress. Um, and again, that was just one of those laughable lines where I was like, is he really doing this? <laughs> now, here's the thing. We talked about Inception, which is, you know, can be a confusing film. But again, and this is something you just talked about with Interstellar, is by the time you get to the scene with the conflict and with the action, you understand what the stakes are. You understand what the goal is of the characters. In Inception, by the time they go into, you know, when they're doing the actual heist in the second half of the film, when they go into that first level of, of the dream, when, you know, it's raining mm. down, I forget which city it is, but it's pouring down and they get they get jumped in the van, you know what they're doing by the time you get to that scene. 
you know, they're trying to incept this person's yeah. mind and implant. So exactly, yeah. yeah in yeah. Interstellar, you're right. When you land on the planet, you know what the stake is. That mm-hmm. this much time means this much time on Earth. You understand when with even this, in the prestige, like certain yes. trips are exactly. certain magic tricks are explained before they even are executed mm. through monologues of Jackman and Bale. Exactly, you're given enough information so when you get to the the scene, you you have some expectation, and then the film can then the film can trick you mm-hmm. or do like some sort of twist. With this film, I'm so distracted watching the scenes trying to figure out what is happening mm-hmm. and by the time I figure out what's happening I'm trying to think okay but why are they doing this again and by that time I've realized that all of the dialogue which I thought this was me I thought it was just me was the the mixing was atrocious in this film I couldn't the dialogue went through one ear and straight out the other and I went online I'm not the only one most people reckon they can't make up the dialogue you can't hear what they're saying half the time yeah and I mean at first, like in the pre-screenings before the film started, our audience was very loud, but as soon as the film started... Oh, no, they zipped. No, they were zipped. There were a couple of audible reactions to certain <laughs> moments, but we also made those noises. Yeah, one, so, one in particular, yeah, we'll talk um, about <laughs> But, yeah, some of the dialogue's really difficult to hear, and it's partly to do with sometimes they're wearing ventilated masks, but... Oh, yeah, that was not helpful. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't. I mean, I think certain Bane had certain similar problems in the original screenings for exactly, Dark Knight Rises. Yeah. Well, they did the preview screenings of the prologue. It was like it was like for Mission Impossible or something. They played the opening scene, and they changed that's it his voice yeah. for the final release. And I'm telling you right now, I'm guaranteeing you the Blu-ray release of this film or the home video release, they're going to change the soundtrack. They're going to adjust the voices mm-hmm. because it was ridiculous. And again, I went online. Dude, we weren't the only ones. There were so many people being like, what is with the sound mix? I can't hear what they're saying. Yeah, and this is becoming quite a consistent problem, so I don't really understand. Maybe mm. maybe he's got acute hearing or something. I don't know. <laughs> I can't tell you. He's just sitting in the theatre. It's fine, guys. It's like, well, but you wrote it, were, dude. You know what they're saying. There were bits where you, I was looking at you, and I was like, I don't know what anyone's saying in this yeah. scene. Uh-huh. And look, it, it, the, it could perfectly be a mixture of the written dialogue, where... You can write dialogue to be forgettable. Yeah. Like throwaway dialogue. You can have performances that are very mumbled. And these are mumbled performances. These characters are very deadpan. There's not a lot of emphasis on certain words. They're just sort of mumbling their lines. And and again, you're right. I think this is a thing that we're seeing constantly in a lot of films. But I think it's a combination of all of those with the sound mix. Like I just... And when so much of the dialogue is expositional and so much of the film is trying to confuse you and trying to unload all of this information to you and you can't even hear what they're saying you spend most of the film I mean you made a joke it was like a two, the two hour mark when you were like oh I just heard something that explains a bunch of what's actually happening yeah it's a good thing there's a certain exchange between David Washington and another character and they basically just explain all the fundamentals of exactly what has happened for the last two hours and you're just like where were you well, before this scene should have been an hour and a half earlier <laughs> So much has transpired that made literally no sense to anyone unless you were like there with like a notepad watching going, okay, so that goes there, that goes there, that goes there. And yeah. And the funny thing is if you look at it, cause it's already up the Wikipedia, like plot synopsis is already yeah. there in full detail and you read it and you're like, yeah, I kind of got that. But again, you're, you're spending most of the film so distracted by all of the elements we've just discussed. You can't hear the dialogue. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of there's a lot going on, and you read the plot, and you're like, "This actually isn't that complicated." 
if you if you take the beats of these characters, but it's like it's so but poorly they, edited, yeah. and the sound mix is so rough, you can't make out what anyone's saying. It's you lose all coherence. And I remember we're watching the scene. This is a wonderful spectacle scene of of the plane crashing into. I think it's like a museum of some kind what? or a bunker. It's this place where a bunch of art exists well, that I, gets transferred. But well, you... that's me. I read the plot and I, I, I didn't know this watching the <laughs> film, but I essentially found out. Oh, he's just doing it essentially to gain Cat's trust to then meet her husband. And yeah, it's. I mean, they kind of acknowledge it in the film where Robert Patterson's like, ah, oh, you know, it's a bit extreme. You know, the size of the plane. I get all of that, but like, shouldn't I have known that before watching that scene? Why was I so distracted by scenes that just... I mean, I'm not even joking. It reminded me of The Rise of Skywalker. There's so many scenes mm. that are just happening, just happening, just happening. Plot, 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 plot. You don't Except have any time to the, follow You can happening. even give The Rise of Skywalker more of a pass than this because... You can hear the dialogue. <laughs> well, that and also Rise of Skywalker had to then fix... Well, I, I don't want to say fix is the wrong word because we talked about it on the episode. It had to remedy problems that both JJ and Johnson created right. over the course of the both of the films for future JJ. Cause I think, future JJ. I mean, we talked about it on that episode. I think JJ caused just as many problems for himself right. in episode seven as Johnson did in eight. So I think together with their powers combined, <laughs> they completely, they completely ruined that You're film. Killing me, whereas, man. <laughs> whereas, um, this uh, film is a singular story single, yeah. that exists and only exists in the confines of this two-hour, 30-minute film. With its only uh, loose link, was it kind of reminded people of Inception <laughs> from the trailers. Yeah. But that was that, that was its only loose tie. So and it, it ended up being only really a tonal comparison because this is not a sequel to Inception. There's no reference. There's no nothing. No, so. no I, I actually think it's, yeah, and it's vastly less coherent. <laughs> and entertaining. It just, yeah. For honestly, you told me you might have been asleep for a small part of it. Yeah, I mean, admittedly, I was tired, like tired, but mm. I don't know. Even when I'm tired, I'm normally pretty chill. about we've gone and seen movies where I've been exhausted and been completely. We saw Baby Teeth, and I was completely yeah. enthralled from start to finish in it. Yeah. This film, the first forty minutes, there's there's just dialogue on dialogue on dialogue, but it's a lot of dial nothing mm. dialogue. It's yeah. not. I wouldn't even call it exposition. It's more just things happening, and they would try and break it up every twenty or thirty minutes with a really big set piece or a small fight sequence or something. But it wasn't enough mm. because for the most part, that like yeah, sure the, the the plane crashing into the airport that's a cool set piece, but there was thirty five minutes of nothing before that. And yeah. we still didn't know what was why they were doing it. Yeah, <laughs> when we watched it, we were confused. It, uh, yeah. So, and I think, it, admittedly, the set pieces, the action to set pieces after that exposition scene at the two hour mark, hmm. the film takes a turn and starts to pick up because I actually started to understand what was at stake. And I think exactly, you hit it the yeah. nail on the head where. All those other films we've talked about, all those other Nolan films is, although they're not told chronologically, for the most part, all of them uh, have a, a mental concept and then they also have, we understand the stakes in the scene. Hmm. You know, we understand that 
in order to uh in inception in order to get into killian murphy's mind they have to go through multiple layers but that increases the risk and we understand that by the time that they're on the plane about to execute the mission exactly we know it in time to watch it and Uh, enjoy it in like i said in the prestige every time jackman or bale does a, a a magic trick now there's there are twists in those but there's enough for us to go in so the twist still comes out surprising but not convoluted and confusing. Whereas yeah. in here, twists would happen, but you wouldn't realize it was a twist because you didn't understand all the stuff that led to the twist. I mean, even the very first scene, and this was an exciting moment, I imagine, for both of us yeah. and everyone in the theater, because it's like you meet, the scope is so evident. Just with those you know IMAX shots mm-hmm. of this big orchestra, there's like, oh, there's hundreds of extras. We're about to enter a Christopher Nolan film. Mm-hmm. You get excited. That only happens every few years. And then immediately... These hired gunmen run out. And it's like, oh, this kind of reminds me of Dark Knight Rises a little bit. But then we're literally thrust upon this situation where, look, we're keeping up with it, sure. Mm -hmm. But it's so sudden and so out of nowhere. And I want to talk a bit about the editing. I don't think it's the editor's fault. So I looked at this. This is the first time that these two people have collaborated. So Christopher Nolan was now working with uh, a new editor, Jennifer Lame, who I just want to give you a track record of Jennifer Lame. She worked on a bunch of uh, Bombac films. Mm-hmm. So, Francis Ha, My Wit Stories, Marriage Story, which I think is one of the, the best edited films of the last yeah. year. Uh, she worked on Midsommar and... Uh, which you really like. Which I love that film. And she worked on Hereditary, so Ari Astra films. She's got a great resume. And this is her first time working with Christopher Nolan. He usually works with... Uh, I want to bring up the name... Uh, here we go, Lee Smith. So ever since Batman Begins, he's always worked with Lee Smith as an editor. And I think Nolan films... I don't I don't think they've usually had the best editing. Like I can point out scenes that look a little jarring Inception or uh, even Dark Knight Rises. Like There's some weird editing moments, like beat-to-beat editing, but it wasn't on the level of... Th- this film was like so incomprehensible from that point of view. The, just the coverage, how often they were cut between coverage... Was just like I was like this is, I was like not laughing, but it was so hard. Do you to think track. he got caught up in his scope of just how I big everything? I think he did. I think he did. Well, it's gonna happen. We were like, what did uh, we guest of the show Stephen Clark say that we finally realized that Christopher Nolan is human? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so he is human after. Yeah, that was um friend of the show Stephen Clark. He wrote that at the beginning of his little review, and like you said earlier, like he. He kind of nailed a lot of it on the head. And I read that review before going into film, and I was like, I didn't want to believe it. You know, I didn't want to believe it. And I went in, and I was like, it sucks, because yeah. he's kind of hit the nail on the head. So like I said, I don't think it's her fault, because the editing's really bad in this film. I'm sorry, it is. And it, I think it's more to do with two things. Either their collaboration, they've mm-hmm. never worked together before, Christopher Nolan and Jennifer Lame. But then on the flip side, the film, you mentioned it earlier, it's two hours 30 on the dot. So... It feels like maybe there was some sort of time restriction. Maybe a producer put his foot down and said, hey, this cut needs to come in at 2.30. Mm-hmm. So a lot of scenes just got like really rushly edited and a lot of the coverage is sort of bang, bang, bang. It's Bohemian Rhapsody. The amount of times you're cutting between characters. Yeah, that's fair. It's so distracting, man. Yeah. It's, um, I mean, at least Bohemian Rhapsody, you could argue that there was obviously, you know, the switch between Singer and Fletch- Fletcher on that. Whereas this is just... Right a director that might have been reined in by producers, but I don't know if you, he would have been because, or why he, he probably was, but why? Because the man makes epic films. Yeah. Like, 
and you know we talked about Dark Knight Rises. I think that clocks in just under three hours. Yeah, it's like two forty-seven, um, maybe. It's, and I think that did get cut quite a bit. I okay. think it was a, at a point in time it was above three. Interesting. Um, but yeah, I think he just was over. Like, there's there's obviously a lot of thought that's gone into it, but I think he's overthought it. And suddenly, mm. sometimes the oversimplification may yep. come out scientifically in, incorrect, but would come out as a more interesting film. And I think that that's what's really at the core of the problem here comes from a guy who is very fascinated with the human psyche and the human condition, mm. and he's shown that consistently over... A, a big array of his films that are predominantly psychological dramas and thrillers for the most part. And he obviously has a very big focus on, he loves his science. He likes physics and he likes that side too. He likes more grounded real science. You know, we saw it in Interstellar. We saw it in this. We even saw it in smaller parts in Inception and even smaller parts in Prestige. But mm. um, I think this is an example of someone who's so fascinated with that stuff that he's willing to compromise uh, normal narrative and film conventions in order to convey the more scientifically accurate mm. yet far less entertaining film. Yeah, I think you've hit the money in there because of a couple of things you said that are I can basically confirm for you in a way. Number one is that I've read that Chris Nolan has been working on this concept, this idea of Tenet, for about 20 years yeah. and that the draft that I think he ended up using for this film was like a six seven year process which to be honest is shocking to me that a script with that much development time is not good and here's the reason i say the script is not good because you're right it's taking these scientific ideas these interesting concepts about stopping world war free inverted objects inverted bullets uh time travel and i do like the idea of time travel in this film mm. it's not you don't you have a delorean you're not jumping from time to time you hit the reverse button or you hit play that's how time travel works in this film. I like those ideas, but then you look at the main character, the protagonist, as he likes to claim. <laughs> he has no... He barely has a personality. He has no backstory. He has no real character traits. He has no character arc. And ultimately, I mean, you look at Inception, even mm -hmm. Cobb, even Leonardo DiCaprio, he's doing this for his kids. He's got a backstory with well, his wife, yeah. who's the antagonist of the film. There are character elements in that film that just do not exist in this film. If any, I mean, the, the character that's more akin to just the person that's sort of there just kind of convey information in Inception is definitely Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character. Mm. He's very much the guy who helps flesh out Leo, but he's a supplementary character. Yeah, Gordon-Levitt's not the, the central character, nor is he the... Uh, the Ellen Page. He's not the placeholder for the audience. Mm. He's the one who gets her and gets the audience in the door and helps identify the, the core problem at the, the center point of Inception, you know, the, the conflict that Leo has. Right. Whereas in this, it's, yeah, David Washington is doesn't want to tell us what's going on, really. And Patterson, who we find out, you know... Mm in the latter stages is much more knowledgeable on tenet than we realize as an audience yeah but we're held off until the last five minutes for that and in a, <laughs> in a film that's two and a half hours long that's way too late in the game right <laughs> look i will say 
look, I do understand. I, I made the joke at the start of the, the start of our discussion of like, oh, what the fuck is going on? I mean, by the time we got to the end, the end frame, I was like, I actually do get a lot of what the plot was, but I think a lot of the ideas were just poorly executed. And wh- one of the things is we talk about, uh, you know, the protagonist not having really any arc or, or story or, or anything like that. He does sort of have this little arc with with Cat, who of course is is the wife of, of of his target essentially. I like the idea that he's going after this target. Mm. He's using the wife to get through to this target. Yeah. But we we see it time and time again that there's abuse, there's neglect between the the couple. He even basically attempts to kill her. I guess it's a little weird. Well, he does technically. He kill shoots her. her at least. Yeah. But. Yeah. And I thought that was a cool idea of, okay, well, she she actively tries to kill him multiple times in this film. She pushes him off the boat at one point. Mm-hmm. And then John David Washington has to save him. And he says, you don't understand what my role is. I need to keep him alive because they need to trace these objects. They need to trace to him how this whole catalyst of World War Three begins. They need him alive. I like the idea of him needing the, him alive, but the wife sort of fighting back from this abuse and this neglect, wanting to kill him. But I just thought it was poorly executed. And the fact that John David Washington has this relation. He's like emotionally attached, where he has he gives up his um the briefcase to try and save her. I didn't buy. It didn't feel earned. Yeah, I didn't feel the connection. And without spoiling the ending, there's a moment where they have a bit of a bromance moment. You call it between um John David Washington and Robert Patterson's character, mm-hmm. where he's tearing up. And, and it's, it's sort it's, of uh, it was it doesn't feel funny. it doesn't feel rationalized because no. for the most part. These two have been people that have been doing their job, mm. and they both need each other to do their job, so, and they distrust each other, as you mentioned. And they spend yeah. yeah a predominant a huge part of the film not trusting each other, um, and no, it's more just out of a, a mutual understanding that their their interests are aligned that they stay together, not that they're friends. Mm, they, they've got a job to do, exactly. Exactly, and um, I that's why that that ending. I guess we can talk feels about kinda, the ending, yeah. feels kind of empty. Well, basically, to some, a spoiler ahead, but <laughs> Patterson's... Well, he's he's dead. He's... Uh, yes. Um, we see the inverted Patterson. And keep in mind, for those who maybe didn't watch the film, they want to keep up, uh, people can in, enter the inverted world. So as opposed to just inverted objects like bullets going back into guns, people can invert themselves mm-hmm. and walk around in the inverted world. So... We see Robert Patterson's character die in the... Like, his inverted version die before we see him at the end. So we know mm. he's about to walk to death so that yes. he can achieve what's already been done in the past. Um, so it's our goodbye. Yeah. he's saying We're saying goodbye to this character. But, I mean, for the most part, they both just sort of uh, are two men that do their jobs. So it's like, you know, it's it's... It's sad, but I, I feel like the ending is trying to play it off like it's a far more tragic sacrifice. But Yeah. Well, I didn't realise why he was tearing up at the goodbye. It's like, are you really that close? Yeah. Like, he's, I guess he saved your life a minute ago, but I, I don't know. I just didn't buy that. Yeah. It's an odd one. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. That, that, so, in, just in terms... Of, it's not even just all the filmic things that I think went wrong with this film. Like, I don't think it's our fault that we didn't understand what was happening half the time. Because, again, I think it's to do with the editing. I think it's to do with the sound mixing. I think it's the mumbled performances. I, I think he's direct... Like, just the writing. And here's the thing. Usually, we talked about his brother, Jonathan Nolan. He usually writes or co-writes a lot of these films. Mm. 
And I checked, and this is one of the few exceptions where Nolan wrote the script by himself. So I think that was a big detriment as well, because, I mean, I've, I wrote it down, just some of the other films that he co-wrote with his brother include the Dark Knight trilogy, Oof. Uh, The Prestige, Oof. Memento, big and, oof. and Interstellar. So these are a lot of his more complicated films. Now, interestingly enough, Inception is not on this list, but I don't know. I just I don't think it was a good idea for him to write this film by himself. I don't think he realized how convoluted it was all. Did you Did you hear that, Zeke? I did. I caught my phone. That's a good catch. I'm a ninja. <laughs> in the in the uh, in the inverted, you you just I, know, I, I just rose my hand and it you just rose your hand. <laughs> <laughs> Much like Ron Weasley gets slapped in the face with a broomstick. <laughs> Um, all right. Well, I think, look, I think it's time to go into the actual time traveling aspects of the film because, well, actually before even that, yeah. let's just talk about the <laughs> Let's villain. talk to that part of the essay, are we? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I was, I was trying to prep for this. Uh, I just want to quickly talk about the villain. Oh, um, Kenneth Branagh. Yep. As a uh, Andre, A-N-D-R-E, Andre. Andre. There's an I at the end. It threw me off. Uh, Sactor. S-A-T-U-R, uh, who I said it to you when we walked out. I was like, he's a terrible villain. He's mustache twirling. Must, I, that's exactly what I wrote. <laughs> mustache. He's not complex, really. He wants to end the world for no reason other than his ego. Yeah. I'm dying. They're going down with me. Yeah. What are you, an emo teenager? What's going, <laughs> what's going on? Um, I like the story of how he came about the first piece. Oh, uh, like dig, the digging up? Well, yeah, because he was in Eastern Europe when one of the nuclear facilities collapsed. Right, yeah. I like that stuff. Mm. Um, that's about as far as it goes, though. <laughs> it's a... Yeah, it's... um, Even, like, some of his monologue stuff when he's screaming at his wife and then on the phone... I told you, I was when he was on the phone talking to the protagonist and it's sort of this final speech because, again, his wife ends up actually killing him. And it's a little serpendicuous that he's killed just as the doomsday device is sort of you know captured i suppose so it was actually quite lucky that the world didn't <laughs> just start dying. I, so wait what was the plan so the idea was that he was going to invert the entire world with his death n- i thought that's what it was uh, yeah yeah and kill everyone yeah because they them. can't breathe Oh, right, right, right. So, not going to mask. So, in the inverted world, that is a quick side note. Uh, it's like everything's opposites. So, oxygen is like CO2, basically. Ah. It's probably the easiest okay. way of doing so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, that makes it's sense. not 100% correct, but it's the, it's the way of <laughs> me. It's me dumbing it down for them. Um, there you go. We needed you in the films, either. But, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I need Neil deGrasse Tyson in this film. <laughs> With like Ken, with with David Attenborough next to each other. Yeah, they just like have a sit down interview. Fucking Michael Caine's in this for like five minutes. Yeah, this what was the it? first time I felt like he was because I actually read that apparently he was just given that one scene, and then did the scene and then just knew nothing else about the film until I guess now now that it's out. <laughs> Does he still no? <laughs> actually, yeah. One of the letterbox. I'm sorry, reviews, Bruce. This made me lose my shit. One of the letterbox reviews was like. Um, spoiler alert and then you click on it and then it just said I still don't know what this movie's about there are no spoilers <laughs> I just like that. I yeah I'm sorry yeah, yeah. so Andre is a he's a rough he's very poor like mm. people used to criti- people criticise Matt Damon's 
uh, antagonists in Interstellar. But at least I knew what Matt Damon's rationale was. Yeah, well, it makes sense. Like, survival instinct, wanted to get home. Yeah. It was selfish over selfless. I mean, he made, he, he was, he made sense. Um, Bane but, makes sense. Yeah. I, just, <laughs> I like Bane. Yeah, well, I can understand what Bane was saying. Um, <laughs> I actually like Kenneth Branagh too. I think he was really good in Dunkirk um, in his smaller mm. role, but I don't know what to say else to say about his antagonist in this one. He's he's an Eastern European antagonist derivative of 1980s cinema, mm-hmm. American cinema. He's got a we good just beard, though. hate on Russia. He does have a good beard. He's got a very good... That Do you have anything up. else you would like to add, Jake, before um, maybe moving into highlight scenes, if you can find one? I think... <laughs> I do have a highlight. Well, kind of. Mm. Um, look, I think... I think we've really bagged on this film a lot. I think it's worth talking about some of the more time travel elements and some of the visuals, because I think those are the best parts of this film. Yeah, you definitely get a... And you can't... You know, for all our, you know, we we had ET a couple of weeks ago, and we talked about Spielberg and how his push to CGI has actually led to his undoing, and mm. um, we've seen we've seen seen the same problem with Lucas, and even some some point now with the Irishman Scorsese to an extent, and I know you oh, and I weren't to particularly fussed by it. You know, I'm gonna be honest. It's been a while since we talked about the Irishman. The more I look at it, the more I realize, yeah, like, with this, yeah, this. Hmm. And pa- and especially with the Irishman, it was so unnecessary. They could have mm. just found anyone that looks remotely like Robert De Niro and just have him play a younger version. People do like people. Yeah, like, it happens. Yeah, <laughs> believe it or not. And I hope that that will be the last time Scorsese does it. But um, yeah, this this is one of the f- few things I can never not criticize Nolan, who only uses visual effects when they're actually required and mm. not out of laziness or or necessity or he thinks it looks better like looks better than the real thing because it never does but if you mm. if you use it correctly and sparingly then it is going to be as close to the real thing as the real thing could be well it's it's interesting cuz first off this film only has 280 shots with vfx effects on them vfx effects is mm. me saying the word twice but VFX. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. So, I mean, that is less shots than I think the effects you were seeing, like Interstellar and, and uh, Inception and, and Dark Knight. I think I've read that somewhere. That's like That's a way lower number than any of those films had. So right off the bat, you're right. He is very much working to the idea of, of as little visual CGI as possible. And even the actual motion that they play with, apparently they uh, that was something that they captured both in backward and forward mobility. So I was actually a little confused by this quote. And I think this was a quote by the uh, cinematographer who, uh, this time around, I think he worked on uh, Dunkirk as well. So he, he he's probably one of the only few collaborators with Nolan that's like stuck with him. Obviously different composer, different editor, mm-hmm. not working for his brother on this one. Um, gosh, why can't I... F- oh, here we go. Uh, so Hoyt van Hoytma, is that his name? I probably a, butchered it, yeah. That's a lovely name. I, li- I like how his first name and his last name are almost exactly the same. That's it's awesome. Yeah, <laughs> it is. He just put a ma at the end of it. Uh, no, so he sh- he shot Dunkirk. He might have shot Interstellar as well, but mm-hmm. of course he went to shoot this film. And uh, that's his quote there. I was confused by what they mean as in like they literally shot the actors 
doing it in reverse because I think I read that somewhere that they did basically two takes of every shot they're like normal and then they asked the actors to play it in reverse I think some of it could have been shot in reverse Mm. some of the stuff that I thought of off the top of my head was the running backwards stuff right okay like stuff that's a little bit more simple not so much the fight sequences like the reverse fight John the protagonist has with himself (laughs) in the past yeah that's him right I feel like that scene wouldn't have been one person in reverse. I feel like that would have just been two, um, potentially someone in a green suit. Maybe. Who stands in, but... I mean, the, anim- the I call it animation, but like the actual motion they're doing, it looks cool. It works. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it kind of looks like a spastics fighting a, <laughs> a person, but it's, uh, <laughs> it's interesting. Um, but I could see some of it being shot some of the stuff that's a little bit more easy, like people running on the spot. Because yeah. I, I found the funny when the soldiers were running forwards and then you'd see in the background some of them running backwards. They that were running cool, they were yeah. running they were running in a way that doesn't look like they've just reversed someone running forwards. It actually mm. looks like people running backwards. Right. Because they're 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 not running as with some of them are quite. If you, well, I was noticing in the background that this is in the last act of the film. Yeah. When they're running in the back, they're sort of running kind of passively, like not, not like they're in the middle of a war zone. Right. It almost feels like they're, they're running and trying not to trip over, so they're running backwards. Because I feel like that's so hard to physically replicate because, like, your knees. Well, you I your mean, knees? I'm, I'm a, you know, I like just outside the show it's i you know i'm a umpire junior football and you have to run backwards <laughs> you have to run backwards right, part of that so enough. yeah it's if you learn how to do it really well you end up just naturally just doing it but obviously when you're carrying 20 30 kilos of equipment even if the gun is fake mm. in terms of production it's still heavy so yeah them trying to run backwards it just sort of look i look in the back and i'm like i'm pretty sure that they're not actually in reverse i'm pretty sure they've just been told to run backwards which still works because if they've fantastic. got if they get given them it actually has it creates like a natural naturalness to it mm. um but it would be i would be very interested to see how they would manage to shoot the fight sequences where one's in reverse and one's not in reverse without some form of visual effects yeah i mean even though we're not very high on this film i think the blu-ray alone would be worth having not not only just to put the bloody subtitles on but you're right to see how a lot of that stuff was done because the fight scene in particular was i imagine would have been really tricky i mean my incarnation of how to do something like this for the example the shot when they're running with the stretcher at the uh, the airport hangar and you see uh the people spraying the water like the water's actually playing in reverse which is really cool to see in juxtaposition um my assumption was like oh but they would put the two people running forward motion on green screen and then they just reverse it because it's easy to reverse footage on, you know, Sony Vegas or Final Cut Pro or even Snapchat, yeah. <laughs> which I did last night. I reversed the video. It's easy as can. Um, but it, it just looks so clean. And I think all the car stuff as well would have been really complicated because there definitely would have to be some actual reverse driving to emulate some of that. Oh, yeah, for sure. Even the actual car crash, and it's the famous shot from the trailer that everyone knows of the car like flipping backwards mm. um and it turns out it was him Whoa. Yeah. um it just it looks so good it looks really good i mean the, some of the physics stuff though really confused me like how you would see the bullet holes already in a spot 
and then eventually you would see the bullet sucking back through like you would usually get the payoff to seeing that thing or like the rearview mirror it's like oh there's a crack on there and then you see later it sort of reverse cracking Mm -hmm. but my confusion was like how does that start like at what point does the glass appear i hmm. i know no because i get there is sort of you see this is why it gets really confusing because there is a machine where you can enter from the normal world to the inverted world um so you can only mean the machines that are in airports for some reason that's a good point. Why was it there? Uh, it comes back to that <laughs> conversation that occurs between the the uh, protagonist and uh, presumably what we think is her his boss, mm. where she basically goes, there was a scientist that created all this time travel inverted stuff, but she's in the future. And because she didn't want people in the future to have it, she hid all the pieces of the, the remnants of it in the past. Right. So that teleporter machine from the future that's... It's, but that doesn't get that does none of that gets explained until that two hour mark where they right, have that conversation. Right, right. So they just there's just these machines that can go into the inverted well, world. Well, I mean, I I get in terms of humans traveling between time because again the the way they do it is it is a linear timeline that you can either go forward in or reverse back. Mm. It's basically playing a VHS tape and having it manually. <laughs> That's what I said. I just yeah, hit the and, pause button. Yeah, exactly, and then manually re- rewinding it. In I guess in times one speed mm-hmm. uh, to get to a certain point in time that you want to get back to in it. Uh, I like the idea that I guess they would age appropriately to that. Mm. So if John David Washington and this is confirmed at the, start, at the end of the film that he does go back in time at least what a couple of years mm-hmm. to recruit uh, Neil or Robert Patterson initially. So it does get a little confusing with that stuff. I mean yeah. it all makes it all makes sense. And to then me. also like, yeah. she gets sent back to a holiday. Um, right. Uh, uh, Debicki gets sent back um, to a holiday with uh, Andre to then assassinate Andre on that because that's in a different timeline. Right. To where yeah. Yeah. I, w- I will say the the scene when then they're meeting for dinner and she's talking about um, that interaction on the boat. That that's another example of cross cutting, which he actually doesn't do too much in this film. Actually, really, that first off, that was one of the scenes where I was like, "Yeah, the editing is atrocious in this scene." That was so confusing. That scene. He goes and sits down. Andre goes, "I'm going to slit your throat and feed you your balls <laughs> in your mouth." And then they, they, the next scene, they're out sailing together. That's I what, was that's so what you're the scene conf- I'm referring to. <laughs> Sorry, I just thought yeah. about that scene where it was like, "Hang on, how would you like to die?" And then, or oh, you're you know, sleeping with my wife? That's yeah, like- and then he's like, "No, not yet." Not and then, yet. And he's like, it's like, okay. Jeez. And then he's like, you're leaving this dinner and you're going to die. And I'm like, okay, are we going into an action sequence here? Like, But they... he starts describing how he's going to like cut his balls off. Or... Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he gets up and he leaves and nothing, nothing becomes of the scene. And then <laughs> I think less than 10 minutes later, he's out on the boat with him. Like, and they're sailing together. I'm like, you just said Again, you were going to... character cut... motivation, man. It's, so, it's all so... over the place. No, that's not even the scene I'm referring to. I'm referring to when... Him and Cat first meet, and they're having dinner. This is before he meets the husband, and she she's explaining to him the event on the boat when she throws the uh, I can't remember what she's holding. She throws something to have a bit of a spout, mm. and the, again the editing. I mean that's an example of cross cutting where she's telling the story and we're cutting to the event, but it's like literally like eight frames. It cuts to like eight frames of mm. the scene and it cuts back and. To be fair, Nolan's done this in the past. Inception does the exact same thing. And I hated Inception as well. But the reason I hated it even more in this film 
is because they play with time manipulation in such an interesting way, especially that last act. Once he enters the inverted world, I'm like, okay, there's the promise of beyond real time I was looking for. This stuff's really cool. The problem is then you're, you're again, you're playing with cross-cutting, you're playing with these other things. I actually brought up, uh, because this is something that we looked at a bit in uh, in one of our classes, mm-hmm. like at Screen Fury, talking about uh, movement image or like time manipulation or image uh, movement. And there's, there's all sorts of different definitions for all sorts of different films. Um, so it actually was really confusing me trying to go through this because there's a lot of different things. But it's sort of the rules of how time works and, and, and memory works. And I mean, one of the examples here is for Inception. So you have the dream image, which is talking about movement and world. And it's talking about how um, movement in the dream world and time manipulation is different to other dreams because an hour means however many seconds in this different world. So, you know, and again, Nolan's played with time mm-hmm. since the very beginning, since Memento, since even following. Um, but this one plays it really well. Where it's like, it is beyond real time because what we are seeing is real time and then half of it's reversed, half of it's playing in real time, but we're not particularly cutting to, oh, here's the past. Here's a black and white, you know, high contrast scene that represents the past. It's like, no, it's so much of it's real time except for that, cross-cutting scene and i don't know it just it just boggled my mind and i thought about it a lot in terms of how is he going to represent time in this film because again he's not doing necessarily what he usually does with the jumping back and forth non-chronological mm-hmm. timeline he's not doing what he did in inception where different worlds represent different measures of time and in, and uh, interstellar does the same thing between planets uh and he's not doing memento where they're just straight scenes but they're played in reverse order Mm. he's like this one is literally hitting the wine bar I mean we've made the I think the VHS comparison is very adapt but I don't know then he does cross cutting in that scene I'm like eh. I don't know should have stuck to it all the way through I don't know would you like to bridge in the highlight scenes Jake? sure <laughs> I would probably say just the final sort of sequence of the film the uh, mm. the two pronged attack the pincer maneuver um, the Oh, the final fight? Not just the red and blue team? Stuff. No, the red and blue team stuff, yeah. That's great. That stuff's great. Yeah. I love the idea behind it. Yeah. It's got some really good set pieces. Mm. And that would probably be my favorite scene. Scenes. Yeah, yeah scenes, exactly. Cross-cutting again, just within a smaller set mm. of, like, locations. <clears throat> Excuse me. Well, I guess they're cross-cutting between the fight, between, like, the underground area, and then the boat. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, that's that's like a Revenge of the Jedi type thing as it is, so... Or uh, Return of the Jedi. I apologize. George Lucas hates me right now. Um, my highlight scene... I mean, I loved all that stuff too. I simply just wrote pretty much any scene in the third act regarding the inverted world. And again, this is... A lot of us went into this film wanting to see this. And the stuff with the inverted bullets and stuff was cool, but it was almost distracting because we couldn't really get the, the logic right. But once yeah. he enters the inverted world, it's like everything around him is playing in normal, I guess, normal speed, and he's playing in invert uh, motion. That stuff, it just looks really, really cool. Yeah. It just looks, even like when he's stepping on the puddle, it's like, that's that's what we're here for, you know? And with all this convoluted plot, sorry, I don't want to, all this convoluted plot stuff, that doesn't, it was just so distracting, when it's like, there are films like Triangle, with a way smaller budget, that get this, trippy time manipulating shit I don't want to say better mm. but just in terms of script and story it's better it makes more sense it's like 
trippy and confusing. You're very passionate about Tenant. I am, man. I don't know. I just I was so disappointed in this film. I really was. No worries. But well, I, I love those scenes. If though. you enjoyed our scientific reflection on <laughs> on Tenant, uh, it is currently out in well pre-sales in Western Australia. Well, uh, at this point, uh, you guys guess you from this Saturday the twenty seventh. I think you can yeah watch the film. So go check it out. Um, if you I, yeah. like, if you like it a lot, I would love to hear the rationale. <laughs> Look, I think that that's the problem. Is like we were very confused watching this film, and it's like I'm mm. I'm on the impression that that's not our fault. I think the film is failing at so many things that is causing the disruption. It's causing the confusion. Yeah, that is not our fault. And again, I'm looking at the Wikipedia plotline. I'm like, this is pretty straightforward. <laughs> But why did it take me two and a half hours to figure out what was going on? You know what I'm saying? I don't know. I I, mean, I can't even recommend this film, to be honest. I can't even a, tell. That's a rough one not to recommend an all and A. I know. I, I feel this is bad. the This is 2020. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It's a strange year for everyone. No worries. Well, it's time to move. What is new in cinemas and streaming platforms? Jakey Boy. Uh, pretty light week this week. Uh, if you're streaming Netflix this week, Vice, which we mentioned. We mentioned Vice earlier in the show. Adam McKay. Uh, so that's coming to Netflix. And a new film called All Together Now, which is an optimistic and talented teen who clings on to a huge secret of being homeless and living on a bus. And when tragedy strikes, she needs to learn how to accept a helping hand. And I saw the trail for this. Doesn't look too bad. Doesn't look too bad. No? No. Intriguing? A little bit. I might see. My voice. I just lost my voice. Does that mean it's intriguing? <laughs> Super intriguing. Super intriguing. The most intriguing, some would say. <laughs> oh, I like the sound of that. On stand this week, I Am Woman is the story of the 1970s musician and activist Helen Helen Reddy, played by Tina Coben, uh, Hervey? Hervey. H-E-R-V-E-Y. Uh, and this film is also playing at Luna this Wednesday the 26th. So it's hitting, it's hitting theaters and, and streaming. Look at that. So there you go. Um, if you want to catch a classic in cinemas this week, you got Moulin Rogue or Rouge? Moulin Rouge. Rouge. Yeah, see, so yeah, the G is later than I expected. By Baz Luhrmann, right? Yeah. Moulin Rouge. Yeah, 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 exactly. So that plays Sunday the 30th on Luna, so that's next Sunday. And this Thursday the 27th, you can watch Django Unchained in Hoyts. Speaking of Tarantino. There you go. Uh, it's a self-referential episode you know it, it? <laughs> and new to cinemas this week is the 800 which is a chinese historical war drama that documents the events of the defiance of shaihan warehouse in 1937 and also coming out this weekend tenet don't watch it <laughs> oh that's a well that's harsh well none of those are we're watching next week on the show but jake what are we watching well next week is uh our famous director's corner it is. Uh, we're nearly getting at what? 20 director's corners now? This would be number 17. 17. Or is. I can't map today. I don't know. But, Zeke, I think next week we should do a Rob Reiner director's corner. Oh. I like the sound so of that. So, what's the film we're watching? We are watching When Harry Met Sally. Men and women can't be friends because no man can be friends with a woman that he finds attractive. He always wants to have sex with her. So you're saying that a man can be friends with a woman he finds unattractive? No, you pretty much want to nail him too. 
During their travel from Chicago to New York, Harry and Sally debate whether or not sex ruins a friendship between a man and a woman. 11 years later, and they're still no closer to finding the answer. See, can you give me praise? Because I literally just pulled out my phone and read that. And freeformed it. Freeformed it. like Eminem. I, I, didn't, yeah, I didn't even check if, if I was going to have any dyslexic words I couldn't say. <laughs> um, and especially because I haven't seen this film before. So, yeah. I can't believe that. Mm-mm. This is easily my favorite romance film of all time. Damn, son. So we're going to have a blast watching this a film blast together. from the past. But until then... Thank you for joining us for the Cinema Side Show podcast. I was Zeke. I was EKJ Tenet. Backwards, Jake. And we'll catch sorry. you next week with when Harry met Sally. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs>